With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Adopt U.S. Kids presents What to Expect When You're Expecting. A Teenager. Learning the Lingo. GOAT. G-O-A-T. Acronym stands for greatest of all time, as in spaghetti sandwiches for dinner? They're my fave. Dad, you're the GOAT. You don't have to speak teen to be a perfect parent. Thousands of teens in foster care will love you just the same. Visit AdoptUSKids.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt U.S. Kids, and the Ad Council. Good morning, good morning, and welcome to Saturday Morning for Joy Keys. I'm your host, Joy Keys. I want to thank you so much for tuning in. You can follow me on Twitter at Joy Keys or on Facebook, Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys, or on Instagram, Saturdays with Joy Keys. And you can also email me. Send me an email. I would love to hear from you. You can send me a comment, suggestion, your thoughts about the last interview or some interview you heard from five years ago. I would love to hear from you. <laughs> and I just want to thank you all for your support, and I hope that you have been enjoying the show and sharing them with friends and family. This morning, wow, this is a really intense book that I had an opportunity to read that some two people wrote together about a really hot topic dealing with race and two women of different races and their experiences together as friends. Uh, This person I have on this morning is just one of the writers Um, She's an editor, also 20 years of publishing veteran. Over the course of her career, she's held editorial posts at many imprints, including Doubleday, Broadway, Crown, Hyperion, and most recently as a senior editor at Simon & Schuster, and published many best-selling and critically acclaimed books. She's also a writer. um, Her first novel, We Are Not Like Them, written with Joe Piazza, was published by Atria Books in October of this year. She does not, I'm sorry, she does select freelance writing and editorial work and pens the Race Matters column and Cup of Joe. You can reach her at Christine at ChristinePride.com or CPride on Instagram. I'm so fortunate to have you this morning, Christine. Oh, my gosh, Joy, I'm so happy to be here. This is really fun to get to chat with you on a a sunny Saturday morning in New York, at least. (laughs) Yes, well, I'm in Philadelphia. And that is another reason I love your book, (laughs) because it is set in Philadelphia. I started reading. I was like, oh, what's she talking about? Oh, my God, what? And you even brought up (laughs) Frank Rizzo. I was like, oh, she brought up Frank Rizzo. Oh, boy, okay. Um, But um, before we actually begin, I just wanted to read this little bit of uh, this this poem that is mentioned in the book, um, and... uh, I thought it was really great. Infinity doesn't interest me, not altogether anymore. I crawl and kneel and grub about. I beg and listen for what can go away as easily as love or perish like the children running hard one-way streets. Infinity doesn't interest me, not anymore. I'm not going to read the whole thing, 
but you know why I read some of that poem. Tell the audience what that, uh, who wrote that poem and, and um, why you might have put it in the book. This is the June Jordan, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, you know, we, Joe and I have lots of different literary inspirations and, you know, love poetry. We have also two different quotes in our epigraph from other authors. And so, you know, we were just really drawing from a lot of, um, you know, other writers for poems that, or, you know, material really that speaks to the themes of the book Um, and, you know, the idea of legacy and relationships and longevity of relationships and generational trauma and, you know, all these things that involve time and time passing, um, uh, you know, is is an important part of the story. Now, why did you choose Philadelphia? I mean, there's so many places. Of course, you you know, there's Chicago, there's New York, there's California. I mean, California has a lot of people. New York has multiple uh, ethnicities from all over the globe. Um, So why Philadelphia? Well, if Joe were on this call, she would say because Philadelphia is the greatest city on earth, and you might agree okay. with that as a as a Philadelphia <laughs> end. But uh, <laughs> uh, my co-writer has a lot of Philly passion, and she's actually born and raised in Philadelphia. Uh, she left for a little while, lived in San Francisco and New York, and then moved back to Philadelphia to raise her kids a couple of years ago. Um, and so it made sense in that respect to have a city that one of us at least knew really well and could become a character in the story. But also we were looking for places, as you just mentioned, where they're diverse enough that two women of different races could meet as children in a neighborhood uh, or in a school, right? And so much of our world is, and our social circles are segregated. Um, And so we wanted a city and a neighborhood where that could happen. And then also had, you know, a history and a legacy of, uh, you know, race, racism, uh, uh, police violence, policing issues, which unfortunately is a lot of American cities. So we could have done, as you said, Chicago and Baltimore, what have you. Um, but we needed a city that was about that size, like a real city, and that was racially mixed. And then, you know, the tipping point was, Joe is from Philadelphia. Yeah. Now you worked with her before you were her editor on um, Charlotte Walsh likes to win. Did you work with her in any other books um, or was that the only one? That was the only one. So that's how Joe and I met through that novel, which was her last novel that she wrote solo. And I was still working full time as an editor at Simon and Schuster. So we, worked on that book together, meaning I was her editor, she was the author, but that relationship can get really close, right? Like you're working one-on-one mm-hmm. with somebody um, to publish their book. I've gotten really close to a lot of my authors in my long publishing career. Um, and so from there, we developed a personal relationship and a friendship. Um, and we worked on another project together after she finished Charlotte Walsh Likes to Win, which is a, a tie-in to the television show Younger, which some of your Mm, audience might watch, Uh, you know, it's a show set in publishing, but I published a book that came out, was a tie into the show, so it came out in real life, but also as a fictional part of the show, very meta, 
And I needed a writer to write that. And so I hired Joe to do that. And so we worked really closely together on that too, because it had to be done so quickly to be able to be in the, um, you know, the time frame of the show. And so we finished that in, uh, gosh, December 2017, early 2018. And that's when we started thinking about uh, we are not like them from there. Now, how long did it take you to put this together? Um, and were you guys in the same city or were you doing like on the phone? Were you using computer and Zoom? Um, because now because of COVID, everybody does Zoom. But before this was before the pandemic hit. How did you guys communicate and, and share notes and things? Yeah, it's funny because, I mean, now everybody, like you said, is on Zoom. When we started writing this, we didn't know what Zoom was. If you said to Zoom, you know, <laughs> Zoom to me, I would have said, you know, to get somewhere fast. <laughs> that was my only contact for, for anything Zoom. Uh, but Joe and I have actually never lived in the same city at the same time. So when we started, you know, kind of conceiving of this book and working on it, we had to figure out how to work apart and long distance, right? Like everybody mm-hmm, does mm-hmm. now. Um, and so a lot of it was on Google Docs. Uh, and so we okay, yeah. started. Shout out to Google yeah, Docs. Again, <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny because I, you know, publishing is very much a word oriented business. And so I actually hadn't used Google Docs at all before we started this process. And I went kind of kicking and screaming into Google Docs. Um, You know, I just really was a word loyalist. But logistically, we needed a way that we could work together in real time in this document. And Google Docs, you know, really was the only way to make that happen practically. Um, And it really was the best way for us to work insofar as we would collaborate on the phone or in Google Hangouts to kind of talk through bigger picture things, especially in the beginning, you know, who are these characters and what's the story going to be and how is it going to come together? And that was a lot of verbal, you know, discussion. And then once we got into writing, we would just both go into this Google Doc whenever we, you know, had time to work or we would say, you know, I'll handle this chapter and then you look at it and vice versa. We would leave each other notes in the comments. Um, and that, you know, really worked for us. And we uh, created about 100 pages between January and September of 2018. And then we sold mm-hmm. the book to a publisher on that hundred pages, then we had to finish writing the book. Funny how they want you to do that. Uh, so we spent yeah, that imagine that. Nine like months. you would have to finish the book, <laughs> and like they don't exactly. know the whole story. You know. Now let me ask you. I I, I read somewhere that um you know she was pregnant, and it's interesting that one of the characters in the book is pregnant. What part of the book is you, and what part is her, or you know like. How did how did yeah. do you have a personal story in here that you wove in here from some experience you had in real life? You know? Yeah, I mean it's it's a mix, you know. I mean, a lot of times people ask us if I wrote the black character and Joe wrote the white character, and you know we really kept it separate like that, which we did not. You know, we both wrote mm-hmm. both characters, but at the same time, okay. we wanted to partner together as a black woman and a white woman to bring our individual experiences to the table. Certainly regarding race, 
So a lot of the things that Riley experiences in the book, some of the microaggressions, uh, you know, and observations and things like that, you know, are drawn from not only my personal experience, but a lot of people's personal experiences being, you know, a black woman in America. Um, And vice versa for Joe, you know, there was parts about being pregnant and we both drew in our friendships with other women and our families. And, you know, we did a ton of interviews full of cops and cops wives. And we talked to a cop therapist. And um, so the book is informed by lots of different, um, you know, just a lot, lots of different observation experiences and perspectives, you know, like all fiction is, right? So certainly yeah. some personal nuggets, you know, ooze in there along the way. I think you also, not just the, the racing, but you also dealt with um, the women in power and the power that women mm. have. And, mm-hmm. and one of the scenes I thought was when the district attorney, I don't want to give too much weight, but the district attorney is talking to, um, one of the main characters, Riley, and she brings up this thing, um, I think it's WWD, you know, yeah. I think that's the thing. Um, and, what you know, would what, a white what man a, do? Mm-hmm. What would a white man do? And, you know, let me tell you mm-hmm. something funny. All my, uh, uh, a friend of mine gave me this little plaque. It said, what would Beyonce do? And um, oh, people, would, people would walk by my desk and they would kind of like, Oh, what would Beyonce do? I said she she wouldn't be working here, <laughs> or she would buy the building. Like you know, it's, so it, it's an interesting phrase that we have to think: what would a guy do? What would a guy, not only a guy, but what would a white guy do, in order to show the difference of power? So the, that character, you know, she was powerful. She was tall. She, you know, she was assertive, and they labeled her something different, like this, you know, angry black woman. Um, I don't think your character, Riley, she didn't seem like the angry black woman. Now, did you, but she was angry about some things. How did you mm-hmm. mm, edit, I guess I will say? You know, yeah, what did you, you, know, what did you leave you, out? What did you leave out that we right. don't know about? Well, I think it's just in terms of Riley's character development, you know, everybody deals with race and racism in a different way, right, as a black person in America. That's part of just, you know, sort of you're even coming of age to understand, uh, I think, before the live started here, we were talking about how when you're little, you have no concept of race or, you know, you don't know that your experience as a black person and kid is going to be different than anybody else's. And as that starts mm-hmm. to dawn on you, right, you, you, you make adjustments and you have this kind of racial awakening. Um, And in Riley's case, we wanted to make sure that that really jived with her personality, right? And Riley is a very buttoned up, compartmentalized, driven, I'm going to stuff all my feelings down and focus, you know, on what's in front of me and my ambition, which is, you know, she really wants to be, to get the anchor chair on at the Philadelphia that she works at as a as a newscaster and so similarly her feelings with race play out that way right there's a lot of stuffing it down there's a lot of um you know just I'm going to put blinders on and just you know not let this affect me until this police shooting happens that really hits close to home especially since she's covering this story 
and some of that armor starts to break down, right? And so she can't protect herself as much anymore. And so that's when the feelings start kind of creeping in, right? So some of that is she starts to realize that she has been angry and scared and, um, you know, frustrated and pessimistic and, you know, those things. And, And that is part of what she needs to share and be open about with, with Jen, her white friend. Yeah. Now, one of the topics that is brought up on both sides, both characters, the, the black character at one point, or I don't know if it was a memorable chapter, but she was talking about wishing to be white. Um, and then mm-hmm. the, the, the white character was, um, you know, talking about being black because she could then get into, um, get a lot of scholarships. I think she was discussing, they were talking about the the schools. Have you ever thought about being um, another ethnicity when you were growing up? Or even now, like, do do you think about if I was this ethnicity, my life would be easier? Yeah, I mean, not really. I think that the the point that you're talking about with Riley is when, She's young. She, I think this is like in fourth or fifth grade, and they're she's in class, and she and Jen are in class together, and they're talking about you know the civil rights, you know, thirty minutes uh, that you get in school uh, where everything was solved, and everybody's <laughs> looking at her. Yeah, <laughs> everything's fine now. Uh, but you know, I do remember. I mean, that a little bit of that is drawn from personal experience because I do. You know, I went to um, I went to school with mostly white kids, and you know, I do remember that self conscious feeling when you're talking about the slavery unit or the civil rights unit, right? And you're the only one. Mm-hmm. And I, I think you know, her reaction to that was like, in this moment or in these moments, it would be easier not to be exposed, not to be black. Um, And I think, you know, a lot of people have that fleeting thought, you know, especially when you're young and still figuring out, you know, how to be a black person in the world. I think I was really lucky that I grew up, much like Riley did, in a family where, uh, you know, we had a lot of racial pride, where it was, you know, a good thing to be black. And, you know, my parents instilled that pride in me you know I've never felt like oh I wish I wasn't black or I want to be white um if anything I wish our society would actually just be set up better uh in so many different ways so that everybody could be uh you know who they are without uh any repercussions uh either way and I think for Jen the white character mm. go ahead sorry go ahead go ahead no, no, no. No, I was going to say, you know, some people mm-hmm. say I don't see color. Do you think the world mm-hmm. would be better if, if it was like that, where we, we don't see color? Or do you think seeing a person's color is an important aspect of respecting them? Yeah, no, I think seeing people's color is a vital aspect in respecting them. And I think this colorblind mythology is is ultimately very detrimental because what it's saying really is you know you're all like us right when you have a, a a supremacist culture whatever that is in our case white supremacy just to erase color right is to default to the the white pov and the white perspective mm-hmm. and so that's the downside of that and even earlier when we were talking about you know sort of black kids being raised in white families and when they're not taught that they're a different color and that's going to be a diff- they're going to have a different reaction in the world 
it's similarly, you know, it's, it's almost a form of gaslighting, right? Because they are going to have a different experience. And so it's unrealistic in our society where so much of, is about race to then say, but I don't see race. Um, and mm-hmm. it, it's also not a compliment to say, oh, don't worry. I don't see you as a black woman. Um, I want to be seen as a black woman. <laughs> <laughs> Now, um, one of the issues that's brought up is you, we mentioned it right before the show started, like uh, intergenerational trauma, mm-hmm. I guess, and also shared trauma. I think of the black community, um, and, and one of the things that Riley talks about is when a black kid is shot or a black man is shot, we all like kind of feel it, like the vibrations it, mm-hmm. all across the black community type of thing. Um, and then there's also the scene. Um, Wow, you know, I don't want to give. She meets another traveler. Let's put it that way, and they they go yeah, somewhere, and, they, and she mm-hmm. finds out um, that person also had a similar experience that her um, her grandmother um, side their, side of their family they they had to um, run because of lynchings. Basically, I'll just say that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and you don't realize how many other people's families are also dealing with that, or may have a history of that, um, and there may be. There stories. Were there any stories in your family of trauma that was that you feel comfortable that were maybe shared with you? That's oh, this happened to our family, and this is why such and such. Yeah, I mean, not in that, not in that extreme as it's presented in the book. But I think you know, all black families have racial trauma, and my family is from Alabama, from the Deep South, as so many black families are, um, and then went to uh, Ohio uh, in the Great Migration. Um, but we really wanted to have Riley's grandmother, Gigi, be a part of the story because it really does show the interracial and the intergenerational, pardon me, trauma. And it's so easy for people, especially white people, and we have such an inclination for this in America to be like, that was ancient history. That was so long ago. Oh, my gosh, that's the past. Why are we still talking about this? And it's really not when you think about, you know, living, breathing, still on this earth people, right, having experienced Mm -hmm. these sorts of traumas. We're not multiple generations away from that. And so there are still really strong repercussions uh, that are intensified with present tense violence, right, when you have a history of violence in your family then a police shooting that's happening in 2018 or 2021, you know, is going to be even more impactful and it's going to be really personal. And so that really was what we were trying to show with that storyline and, you know, to really get that across to readers. Did your family, your mother or father, have a conversation with you about what to do if the police stopped you? And at what age did that conversation happen? Yeah, I'm the youngest. I have two older siblings that are eight years older than me and 10 years older than me. And so I think the conversation, it wasn't direct with me. It was more osmosis, right? Like they were already out and driving and, you know, like being, they went to college and all these things when, when, uh, as I was growing up. So it was more for me, I think, observation. But my brother, who's a black man, um, is, um, is deaf and so it was a real conversation for my parents with him and I think an extra layer of worry 
that he wouldn't be able to hear police commands, right? And that is mm. a, a really fraught situation where police yeah. could be yelling at you, telling you to stop doing all these things and not realize that you're not ignoring them. You can't hear them. And that, right, you know, right. I think was an extra layer of concern in our family. Wow. Now, what about um, when you were growing up? There were some very positive and happy moments in the story, and one of them was talking about cooking and sharing the recipes. Um, and once you cook, then it re- reminds you of the person. Do you have any family recipes that were passed down to you or that you know of? Um, I'm why are you laughing? Can you cook? Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, no, not at all. This is, this is where the <laughs> fiction really comes in, fictional, because no, okay. no, 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 no. I do not cook at all. And, I mean, you know, in many ways my family is, you know, uh, a very uh, stereotypical, is not the right word, but a very typical black family. Um, but the cooking part is is not one of them. You know, my grandparents, uh, my, my grandmothers, you know, both sides, um, you know, are not huge cooks. Um, so that is not a legacy that has really been passed down to me, I have to say. And the, the recipe well, for see, Miracle that's Bread good, that's in the good book, to know, too. Though, yeah. you know? But, you know, that's good to know because it goes back to black people are not a monolith. You know what I mean? Uh, totally. That there's all different Absolutely. types of black families mm-hmm. and everybody is not the same. So don't make the assumption, oh, you know, um, y'all must have this slamming mac and cheese, this and that other, and you might be like, oh, no, we got it catered. You know, we got it catered with, you know, white tablecloths. So, uh, you know, everybody is different. So I, um, I think it's good that you told that story. Um, let's talk about a little fun things because we're running out of time here. But if you had a superpower, what would it be? Oh, my gosh. Um, you know, I'm really good, I have to say, at making friends. I think that's my superpower. I really like to do it, and I really like to go out and meet people and find a, you know, kind of instant common ground and connection with them, and I really care about when I meet somebody, you know, sort of who they are and what's going on in their life, Um, and, you know, it's pretty easy for me to be vulnerable pretty quickly, maybe much to people's dismay about what I'm willing to (laughs) tell them. Uh, and so, uh, you know, that, that serves me well. And I think it's why I do what I do, right? Like going out and talking to people and hearing their stories and making these forms of connection um, is really something that I enjoy. And then I think when you enjoy something, you tend to be good at it. If you have $100, what are you going to do with it? Oh, my gosh. I, well, you know what? I would donate some of it. I always, like when I come into money for whatever reason, I really do try to pay it forward in one way or another with a donation to one of my causes that I'm passionate about. Um, And with the rest, I don't know. I'm a big, um, what would I do with that? Maybe a nice meal. Like sometimes that's what makes me feel a little guilty. Like, you know, the, the splurge on like a steak dinner or something like that. Um, So if I came mm-hmm. into money, I might use it for, you know, something I wouldn't normally buy myself. Peanut butter and jelly or turkey and cheese? Oh, peanut butter and jelly. I hate turkey. Coming off of Thanksgiving, I was reminded of that. Peanut butter all day. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what kind, of jelly, what kind of jelly do you put on your uh, peanut butter and jelly sandwich? Grape, for sure. You can only have grapes. 
That's it. And what kind I of bread? I don't want to hear from these What's strawberry the people. <laughs> oh, oh, my God. I, like what about really, the bread? And, and... Well, for bread, I like a really mushy uh, but wheat bread. I do not like white bread that much, but uh, I like a okay. not a dry. You know, sometimes multigrain breads can be dry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And are you a crunchy peanut butter or smooth peanut butter? No! Oh, my gosh, no. I don't think crunchy peanut butter should exist. It has to be as smooth <laughs> as possible. <laughs> I have strong feelings, you can tell, about both peanut butter I can butter tell. And no strawberry and, and, and no crunchy peanut butter. Peanut butter. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, Christine Fry, thank you so much for coming on the show this morning. Um, thank you and Joe for writing this wonderful book. Um, I, as we mentioned earlier before we came on, I think it's going to help a lot of people, might appeal some relationships, might expand some relationships, and just allow people to look at things from a different perspective. You know, we because we don't speak it, then we don't know what the other person is thinking. But this book, I think, can kind of maybe give some insight to maybe what the other side is, is thinking and feeling um, and, and help you know, make make the world a better place. Um, real quick, what are you working on next after this? Yeah, so uh, we are about 100 pages into our next novel. It's called You Were Always Mine, and it is about a black woman who finds an abandoned white baby and sort of the collision course that sends her on in her life in her small town with the baby's birth family. Um, a lot of drama ensues. And if your listeners want to, you know, follow to see when that book is coming out or other events that we're doing for We Are Not Like Them, um, they can find me on Instagram at at Pride. Excellent. Thank you so much. I hope you have a great weekend and eat a great and smooth peanut butter sandwich this weekend. (laughs) I know. Now I have all that talk about peanut butter and jelly. I have a craving. So it was so fun to talk to you this morning. And now I'm off to to make a sandwich. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks, Joy. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. I just got off the phone with author Christine Pride. I'm going to be giving away some copies of her book that she wrote with Joe Piazza, We Are Not Like Them. So please follow me at Joy Keys on Twitter. Check me out on Facebook, Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys, and on Instagram. And speaking of Instagram, I'm going to be doing an Instagram live interview in about five minutes with astrologer Samuel Reynolds. So you want to go to Instagram, follow me Saturdays with Joy Keys on Instagram, and you can see the live interview. I'll talk to you soon. With the Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Grand Canyon University makes earning your degree possible with over 130 academic programs for traditional campus students with more than 80 bachelor's programs offered online. GCU provides you with the personal support you need from complimentary unofficial transcript evaluations within 24 business hours to scholarships, academic support, and your GCU graduation team led by your own university counselor. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.